0: There, there, there's something amazing about the commonality of, of man. I, I, I know that sounds like a really deep concept. I'm not going to go into that too much. But it's just, it's amazing how alike we all are. <laughs> it's amazing how alike we all are. Because we're all created in his image. You know, we've all struggled with so many of the same things. You know, and and we allow these things to divide us all the time. We in our we have a a time before the service starts where we come together and we, we pray and and we listen and we see what the Lord's saying and doing. And and Luke, our our youth pastor, he had a just a word about the being family, and and that just kind of hit me today. We're we're so much alike. We're the things that make us alike are so much stronger and more common than the things that divide us. And that's not just true in this room. I mean, that that's true with the people that we find. From in Iran, Saudi Arabia, in India, in Thailand, people, people are people, and our struggles are our struggles, and it's so good when we can be who the Lord's made us to be. Um, I don't know why this story occurred to me, but but I was just thinking about this now when when I'm thinking about how how funny the, these things can can be. We we will never be estranged. There was a time when I was uh, a pastor of a church that was in a more close to downtown Raleigh, and we had more colorful characters who came through there than, than what we've seen in, in more suburban Holly Springs, and uh, this one time we were doing communion, and this guy came up, and he mumbled something to me, and, and I couldn't understand him, and I asked him to repeat himself. I thought he was going to make a confession of his sins or ask me for prayer for something, you know, and he mumbled again, and, and I just had no idea what he was saying, so I asked him to repeat himself a third time. So finally, he opened up his trench coat. And he says, do you want to buy a watch? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> I did not want to buy a, a fake Rolex at that point in time. That was not on my agenda for that morning. You can't surprise me is, I guess, what I'm saying. <laughs> I've seen things. I, I, I've heard things. I, I, don't, think a, I don't think we're going to have the same stories. Um, An elder, because I I could understand that, an elder graciously took him aside at that point and said that we were not selling wares in the middle of church. (laughs) That wasn't what we were about. Um, God bless him. God bless that time. Uh, So we're in a series that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Uh, (laughs) It's because I love people. I love stories. Um, We're in a series on the kingdom of God and kind of how relevant that is to us because we say that we're people of the presence of God, and, and really what that means is that we understand that our home is not of this world. That we have an understanding that the, the pressing reality is the kingdom of God. Jesus came really speaking the kingdom, practicing the kingdom. It's this big thing that we kind of dance around because we're more comfortable with the democracy, right? We understand that idea. But oftentimes, we found that in our Christian faith, we apply the things from a, a democratic, capitalistic society into the, the church, so we we go to churches where we agree with things and it feels comfortable and we, we vote with our wallets or our, our feet, you know, all these sorts of things. We don't always respect the kingdom of God as Jesus is Lord, He is King, and He came to practice that the Lord has authority over this place. So it's the rule and reign of God is kind of the, the summation of what the Kingdom of God teaching is, but it's realized in so many amazing ways. When people are healed, it's because God is reigning. It's because he's ruling. When people are forgiven, it's because the king declared that they're forgiven, right? It's, it's an amazing thing when we can frame our struggles, our problems, our understandings in this big picture that it matters because God is on the throne. If he wasn't on the throne, I don't know that these things matter as much. But because he's on the throne, then his will can be realized. And when we know that he has a good will, when we know that he's a, a good God, great. But the kingdom of God is unique. And one of the things we want to talk about today is how the kingdom of God appears to be upside down from how we often understand these things to work. The kingdom of God is often upside down from how we expect. Hierarchy makes sense for many of us. We're comforted by hierarchy, right? It's very human. Authoritarian figures can be very, very comforting. But there's times, I think maybe as you grow older, you realize this, where you see behind the mask a little bit. And you look around and you're like, are there any adults in the room whatsoever? <laughs> like like you, you realize that, that people, kind of like I was saying, are people, right? That they're maybe not experts in all these things. You realize that, that the emperor is wearing no clothes. You, you realize that these are flawed humans trying their best all the way up the chain. And some of that might be comforting some of that. Some of that might be disconcerting to you to realize that people are people all the way up the chain. But it's a coming of age often when we hit that. it was disconcerting at first to me when I heard other spiritual leaders say some of the exact same things that my spiritual leaders were saying because I thought that we were you know unique and special and these were insights and wisdom that that we had you know when we talk about the kingdom of God that's a that's something that we kind of have and it I wanted that to be special but of course that's not the way that truth works right that's not the way that they these things should work on the in the realm of what is real and what is true. If it's true for us, it's true for everybody. But we build these cults of personality, we build these brands, we build businesses or armies kind of under this understanding that the people above me are somehow more special, more unique, or more called, and that, that for is going to be an identifying factor for us. We want this novel, unique, groundbreaking personality, and a lot of us do, this magical entrepreneur who writes the books, who has those witty sayings, but what is true is true. And and besides being disconcerting, it becomes a source of great comfort to realize these things are true because the kingdom of God is what's real. It's because the Lord has declared things that make these things true for all time. We're not looking for new revelation. We're not looking for some deep insight that nobody's ever uncovered before. Like, I'm highly suspicious if there's something that we haven't looked at yet in scripture. But what matters is how it applies to my life. What matters is how it's going to be spelled out in this year, in this town, in this this country where we find ourselves now. But we can't recreate these worldly systems in the kingdom. You know, when we try to to build up the church or something in the sense of a business or armies or these cults of personalities, we're introducing a hierarchy. You know, we got this org chart here, which is pretty common in, in a lot of these things, right? We understand this is something that makes sense to us. You know, you've got somebody on the top, you've got somebody underneath him, and you find your place on this org chart, and you think, okay, in the kingdom of God, I kind of know where I can be. But what's amazing about the kingdom of God is this doesn't really apply. Jesus came to serve they give his life as a ransom for many. So is he on the bottom of the orchard? Is he on the top of the orchard? Like how does, is he on the throne or is he not? Well, he is and he's not. And, and he comes and he shows us a different way of seeing this whole thing. That even though God is reigning, even though the kingdom of God is set up with him ruling and reigning at the top and having a name above all names, he washes our feet. He dies on the cross. And this whole understanding we have on, on what a God should be like, on what respectable looks like, on what having power and authority looks like, this is all turned on its head. And I, I fear that many of us, when we get comfortable with the things of the church, we forget how incredibly unsettling and unnerving it is to have a God who died for us. I mean, th- this was one of the, the, the staples that... Christians were mocked for in the very er early, one of the earliest graffitis we have in Italy, you may not know this, was a cross with a donkey on it. And it's an insulting thing to Christians, but why is this graffiti that was put forth? Because these Christians believe that their God came and died for them. Like that's, what kind of a God is that? Right? And they were mocking Christians because we had a sacrificial God. Do we understand how incredibly unnerving it is to think that the creator of all heavens and earth, of all things, who has all the power, would submit himself to a humiliating death amongst criminals? Or are we so comfortable with the gospel that we just expect that that's how every god should be and that that makes perfect sense? Everybody's going to have that understanding. The kingdom of God is upside down from the way we understand things in the world. I went to a Christian school for a while. And as kids do, you fight over who's the first in line, right? That's, that's what you do. So we, we'd always have these arguments in, in the beginning of going to the bathroom or the library. It didn't matter. We wanted to be the first in line. We wanted to get out of there probably as soon as we possibly could. So we were always fighting to be on the front of the line. And, and the Christian teachers, they, they, they knew that we were doing that. So they started doing something kind of novel but also kind of funny when I think about it now. And they would take who's in the first of the line and move them to the last and take who's on the last and put them in the front. You know, there's that Bible verse that says, he who's first shall be last, and he who's last shall be first. And so then we started fighting over who's going to be at the last of the line. <laughs> True story, we really did. And then the teachers were like, we're not going to do it every time. <laughs> so who's the first will be last, and the first will be last. That's Matthew 20:16, and it worked. But the Bible has this way of upending the systems that we think we understand so, how does God turn things upside down? This is pretty well trodden out, you know. If you read scripture for very long, you're going to come across these stories, right? You had a society where the firstborn child was supposed to get a double portion of the inheritance, right? So, the firstborn son was a really special child. He would get twice what his, his other brothers were. And get gonna The firstborn of the king becomes the king, right? You have these larger, more powerful nations, and they're going to be the ones who rule over other nations. That is just kind of how the world works works. Immigrants were marginalized, women were marginalized, the poor could not find justice. But when you look in scripture, you find God constantly subverting those status quos, those things that you expect. I don't think we appreciate, again, when we read our scripture, how revolutionary a lot of these things were. In the Bible story, we have Jacob, the younger, wrangling the blessing from Esau. Joseph is recognized as the true firstborn, even though he was not David is anointed king above his better looking and more fit brothers. God trimming down Gideon's army to smaller and smaller to get the job done. The list goes on and on and on. The Bible is constantly showing us that these ways that we understand the world to work don't work that way in the kingdom of God. God chose Israel, this nation. Why did he choose Israel? Deuteronomy 7 says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, the Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasure possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you to, and chose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand, redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The marginalized enslaved people of the Israelites were God's chosen people. Because they were more powerful? No. Because they were more numerous? No. Because they were better? No. If you read the scripture, they were certainly not more holy. Why did the Lord chose them? The Lord chose them because he loved them. He made a promise and he's going to keep it. And that gets to be realized for us. The Bible pays special heed to Miriam, the prophetess, and Deborah, the judge, and Esther. Why? They directly subvert the men in those societies. The Bible's always showing us that God is looking at the structures we put up and saying, that's not the way it is in the kingdom of God. We know when the kingdom of God, there's not gonna be male nor female, slave nor free, Greek nor, nor Israelite, right? Because all of those divisions we put here with the power, with the, the prestige, with all the rights associated with it, the Lord is saying, that doesn't translate to the kingdom of God. Those aren't the rules we play by in the kingdom of God. Leviticus nineteen thirty-three and 34, among many other places, calls out a love for the immigrant. Do not mistreat foreigners who are living in your land. Treat them as you would an Israelite and love them as you love yourselves. Remember that you were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And I had to include that because I love that God kind of signs his name on this one, right? It's like, remember how you treat these people. I'm the Lord your God. Do this because he is the Lord. Look at those who are marginalized. Look at those who are forgotten. Look at those who who don't have power and realize the kingdom of God came for them. God declared a whole system to ensure that people could not not be enslaved by debt forever, making interest on loans forbidden. That's a huge thing. Ursary, you could not charge interest on loans. Why? It wasn't fair. You couldn't do this to your brothers and sisters. Like, you could loan money out, sure, but you couldn't charge that interest. And land that you would rent from somebody would return to the person who owned the land every few years. Why? Because it's not fair. (laughs) The Lord is constantly looking at our financial systems and saying, that's not the way it is in the kingdom of God. You want to to acclimate all this wealth. You want to be in charge of all these things. Well, the Lord comes and he says, not in the kingdom of God. That's not how the kingdom of God works. Hebrew slaves, and prisoners would be freed, Debts would be forgiven. The mercies of Yahweh would be particularly manifest in the year of Jubilee. What an amazing concept. You know, what now we see that transfer of wealth, and we, we kind of accept it as the status quo, right? Some people are born wealthy. Some people are not. Some people are born white, middle class, and, and, and male, and some people are, are not. And we, we consider these things in kind of almost your, your rite of passage. Not in the kingdom of God. That's not how the Lord has ever designed the system to work. But the world builds these systems around here, and God turns things upside down. Why? Why does God subvert these systems? You know, we love our underdog stories, right? I don't know what your favorite underdog movie is. Rocky, Rudy, Karate Kid. That is probably shown my age (laughs) as I'm going to movies back in the 80s. You know, we we love these underdog stories because they, they really speak to something I think we can relate to. But if we're not careful, I think that we'll begin to imagine that the kingdom of God loves the weaker, that he loves the poor, that he loves the destitute, he loves the sorrowful for some inherent value in their suffering. Okay? And this, I think, is dangerous ground that I don't want us to go down. Job saw material blessing before and after his suffering. Right? David saw political success. Solomon though he fell victim to it, was blessed by God with riches and a long life. Joseph was blessed with success in everything he put his hand to. Abraham was blessed abundantly among all these people. Tell those men that there's an inherent value in poverty <laughs> and they're going to look at their lives and say, but this is from the Lord. The Lord blessed me with all these things. So why should I, I choose this suffering? Why should I, I embrace that as if, if that's the only way forward? Sometimes we approach favor and blessing and humility that we think we have to be destitute. That we think that we have to be sorrowful, that we have to be lowly so that God can raise me up. We get this false sense of piety. This false sense of, of being sorrowful and trying to magnify our stories to make them sound worse because it's like, oh, you don't know the troubles I've seen. You know? And We, we, we have this, this idea of trying to compete to be the lowest because we think that that's what the Lord is going to honor. And we've missed why the lord is near these things why the lord subverts these systems the blessing that we find in the kingdom of god in the lowly position is god himself lifting you up that's the the blessing to be found is him the blessing is not inherent in the lowly position the man who was born blind the joy wasn't in his blindness It was in Jesus healing him from this so that that was not a part of his story, declaring it's not because of his sin or his parents. It's so that God's glory could be seen. God's presence, God's healing, God reigning is what is the the point of these things. That's what allows us to enjoy and celebrate the kingdom come. If we don't understand the kingdom correctly, we get a twisted view on brokenness and suffering. We also love rags to riches stories. Slumdog Millionaire, Pretty Woman, Annie, you know, all, all these things where where we have somebody who is destitute and then to become rich. But then if we're not careful, we think that the Lord loves winners, right? That the kingdom of God, the material worth, that blessing is kind of the end result and that this is necessarily what God is going to go about trying to do. That if God really loves you, then then of course, maybe it starts off rough, But I know what the end result is going to be. I'm going to be a millionaire. You know, the Lord's going to take care of me and everything will be fine. And we talked about the kingdom come and not come (laughs) a few weeks ago. It's not a fun sermon, but we got through it. Thank you all. Solomon's wealth led to his downfall. Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. Right? This starts to put that in perspective as well. James 1, 9 through 11 says this. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossoms, falls, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. This can lead us to a straightforward, you know, rich is bad and poor is good mentality. But I think there's so much more to this. John Flavel an old uh, Puritan writer. He wrote this book in the 1600s. I've got a cover of it here. It's called A Keeping of the Heart. Timothy Keller pointed to me this. I'm going to read what Timothy Keller wrote about this. In this book, he has a list of 12 situations that are spiritually tremendously dangerous situations. During these situations and these seasons, one must be unusually diligent to keep the heart. There are times of great trial. If you're not careful, you can fall into terrible spiritual situations. He goes through sickness, death approaching, time of persecution. He makes a list. But do you know what the number one trial is? The number one difficulty is prosperity. In other words, the Bible teaches James is teaching the greatest trouble is to have no trouble. The greatest spiritual trial is to have no trial. It's the greatest spiritual danger there is because that's the problem with prosperity. You hitch your heart to things And that is what makes them a trouble. Troubles reveal the fading things that you use, the fading things that you build your life on. I'm going to start from Timothy Keller and say, that's when we find ourselves in the systems of this world. When we understand hierarchy, we understand authority, we understand commerce, we understand that what I can do with my own two hands, and we, we build these kingdoms with these understandings. Your troubles are wonderful, Timothy Keller says. It's the reason why the lack of trouble is the biggest trouble of all to show you the things that made you weak the parts of you that are fading alright so now where are we (laughs) if blessings not in wealth and success if it's not in poverty and brokenness where do we go from there goodness righteousness intimacy with God those aren't inherent things that the rich or the poor get Goodness, righteous, intimacy intimacy with God. Those are not inherently to the rich or to the poor. This is not in defense of billionaires, nor is this validating our sufferings as necessary for us for Jesus. God loves the poor is very different than saying God loves you because you're poor. All right. God loves the brokenhearted is different than saying God will break your hearts so that you learn a lesson. Now maybe you see where this twisted theology has gotten at us. We think God is 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 gonna break me, God is gonna do these things because He, he wants to be close to the brokenhearted. And also we have a, a God that is doing harm to people just to try to get at them. And doing real harm and, and really punishing us and, and we see these things as, as somehow good and holy and, and righteous. Here's a cooking illustration. I don't I don't get to use this too often because I'm not a chef. <laughs> But I like, to, I like to smoke wings. Anybody else? You know, And, and, and I got a rub that I use on, on wings, and I'll put them in a bag. I don't know if you've ever had a perfectly smoked, unseasoned wing. <laughs> really disappointing, right? You're, you're going through your, your, your wings, and they're great, and then all you have one, and there's just no seasoning on it whatsoever. And so what you have to do is when you put them in a bag, right with the seasoning, you have to shake it up. You have to turn it upside down a few times. You have to work it so that the seasoning doesn't just dump on the whole thing and sits there and gets the ones in the middle. I believe God upends the systems of this world to get those who are in the margins. To make sure that every wing is perfectly seasoned. (laughs) But I think you hear what I'm saying, right? God upends the systems of this world because otherwise there's people that the patterns of this world will completely forget and ignore and marginalize. That's not the way it is in the kingdom of God. God looks at what we've done with our wealth. God looks at what we've done with our wisdom, with our intellect, with our systems of governance. He looks at that and goes, yeah, you took care of 80%. What about these 20%? My heart is for them too. They, they belong in the kingdom of God. It doesn't come and saying that these 80% are bad and evil and they don't deserve God's blessing. He's saying these 20% have been ignored by your best efforts at wisdom. These 20% have been ignored by by how you understand love and family. They don't have any any provisions. They don't have justice. And God looks at them and goes, I'm going to go be with them. And I'm going to upend the system. That this way that you're giving a double blessing to the firstborn, guess what? I'm going to go to the lastborn child, and I'm going to give him a special blessing. The way you think that this kingdom needs to pass from father to son, you know what? I'm going to give the kingdom to somebody whose heart is close to me. That's what the Lord does. He looks at our best efforts and he goes, it's not sufficient. It's not even close to sufficient. My heart is for all these people. There's not one that is forgotten. There's not one that is ignored. So you have the 99 sheep and the one wanders off. Where does the Lord go? He goes for the one that wandered off. That that doesn't make economic sense. If you're a shepherd and you have a hundred sheep, you still got 99. That's pretty good. You know, like you, got, you, you let one go that's margin of error. You say that, okay, it's a shame we lost one in transit. It happens. The Lord's not like that. The kingdom of God is not like that. His heart is for particularly those who have been ignored and forgotten by our best efforts. So maybe it's not wings and, and rub, maybe it's shake and bake. Y'all ever do the shake and bake ones? That probably dates me as well. I don't even know if they still make shake and bake. May, maybe a bit of salad that doesn't get the, the, the dressing on it. I'm sure there's others. I don't know what, what y'all like to eat. But it, it's that idea, I feel, that, that God needs to ensure that all of us, that all of humanity, everyone created in his image, gets to understand the goodness of the kingdom of God. That he, he's, not, he's not content to let the systems of this world define justice, to define blessing, to define who gets some and who doesn't get some. Because our best efforts don't cut it. Think about the systems that aren't fair. Politics aren't fair. Courts aren't fair. Finances aren't fair. Social order isn't fair. God doesn't just shrug his shoulders and say, oh, it's a tough break. Yeah, you know, some people are born lucky and I guess you just weren't. Some people are born with a silver spoon in their mouth and you, you're not. Some people are born with a trust fund and then they'll inherit a million dollars when they turn 18. You just don't get that. It's just the way life is and he just shrugs his shoulders and says, tough break. What kind of a God would that be, right? That's not what the Bible ever tells us. The Bible shows us that whenever he sees that injustice, when he sees wealth accumulating, whenever he sees people forgotten and ignored, he says, no, I got to show you that this isn't my system. This way you're doing inheritance, that's not my system. This way you're showing love, the way you're running your courts, that's not my system. Our justice fails, our generosity stops. Really, simply, it's because of sin. God inverts these things on, on purpose to the benefit of those with and those without to show us how inadequate they are. Corruption of power. Corruption of power is defined as when someone uses that power for their own benefit. All right, now think about how rampant corruption of power is. If you have power and you use it for your own benefit, that is a definition of the corruption of power. And that, by the way, is not a biblical definition. That's the U.S. court's definition of a corruption of power. So that's not me being a pastor right there. That's just me sharing with you what it says in the legal system. If you use power that you've been given for your own benefit as a corruption of power and that points us I believe right to Jesus Philippians 2 who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage what an amazing depiction of the inverted kingdom what an amazing picture of how these things could actually work rather he made himself nothing He didn't use it for his own benefit. And so he was given everything again. It's almost like it's inverted twice, (laughs) right? God has to subvert the system to set things in the order that they're meant to be with him reigning, with him ruling, with his goodness, with humility setting the patterns, with generosity setting the patterns. That's the way God intended for it to be, that we'd be in the garden where the things that you need out of life just literally grew on trees, you know, where where he provided a system where everybody was to be cared for, where every need was met. And we'll get back there. So the kingdom of God upends the systems of this world to make sure that those without aren't without. The order of this world puts certain people on the outside and for them to be where God wants them, where they belong, to meet with God's grace and goodness, the system has to be upended. Psalm 34 says this, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Imagine that. God, the King of kings, Lord of lords, the most powerful being in the universe. Where does he choose to spend his Saturdays? I'm going to intentionally say this wrong, but yeah, the fish of a feather flock together, right? Y'all, y'all have heard that. So is God going to be with the rich and the powerful? Does God go to, to share it's like, to rub elbows with those people on earth who are the most pretentious, those who have the most power, so that, you know, if, if you could save a, a, a king or a president, like, just imagine the influence, God. Like, that makes logical sense, right? Use the systems of this world to define everything correctly so that you can get the greatest bang for your buck right and we think in the kingdom of God that's how he should do it we look at celebrity culture and we think man their influence if that celebrity would become a Christian just imagine all the people they could reach if that musician would become a Christian just imagine the benefit right you ever pray that way too where you try to, to angle with God if you answer this prayer just imagine the, the trickle-down effect that I'll, I'll give you with all that I can do like I'll, if I win the lottery God you ever pray this one I'll tithe 60%, <laughs> right? Because we think in the systems of this world. We think uh, there's so much good that I could do with this and, and God looks at it like, why would I want that? Why would I want that? That's not the system of the kingdom of God. He's so not concerned with our financial wealth. It, it's not the pattern of the kingdom. Now, what, does he want you to be blessed and taken care of? Absolutely. But that's, not the reason. The way we expect influence, the way we expect power, we, the way we expect these things to happen, the kingdom of God has never been concerned with. That the Lord will take a man born in a manger, give him his spirit, allow him to be the most pivotal point in all of human history. So are the rich inherently evil? No, I, I think about this one a lot. John 9 says it this way. Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. It's where we put our faith. It's what we put our confidence in. You know, our, our privilege, our, our power, our prestige, our understanding, our wisdom, our, our best efforts, our our righteousness. When we put our confidence in those systems and those things we can do with our own two hands, that's where we've really confused this thing, right? Because it's like, I, I can do this. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I can do this. I can, I can handle this much. And when we handle this much, all of that we're doing is removing it from the power of God. And we're taking it from the, the systems of, of God to the systems of man again. How many times do we fall in the system of this world instead of the kingdom of God? Luke fourteen eleven, For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is what the Lord does. I mean, it, this is not in one place in Scripture. Like, again, I feel like if you understand this about the kingdom of God, it starts to make sense. The Lord is trying to, to, to show me a more perfect way. The, the Lord is trying to show me to trust him and not myself, and to not trust the United States of America, to not trust my own righteousness, to not trust wealth, to not trust the good intentions of, of people that are above me, to not trust this authority that we've got set up, but to trust him that he's the vine, we're the branches, to understand the kingdom of God is first. If I seek first the kingdom of God and righteousness, then all these other things will make sense. Isaiah 61, which Jesus fulfills and he reads in Luke 4. This is, is with this understanding that God subverts the systems of this world, when Jesus read this and said, this is fulfilled today, imagine what he was saying. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. You could start a counter, right? <laughs> there, there's one right, right now. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. Bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins, restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations. and In their riches, you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And you, so you will inherit a double portion in your land. and Everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. He looks at the systems, he sees the lack of justice, he sees the robbery, the wrongdoings, and he says, I love justice. Every wing has got to get the right amount of spice. I need to make sure that everybody knows the goodness of the kingdom of God. goes on, in my faithfulness I will reward my people, make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations, their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. Not that they're lucky, not that they're fortunate, that not that they're the best, not that they're the most numerous, not that they have all the right answers, but that the Lord has blessed them. They have attributed everything to the kingdom of God being realized amongst them. That sets them apart. That God is their king. That his systems, his justice, his love, that's what orders my life. It's not my king. <laughs> It, it's not the, the laws that we have. It's not, not how good we can be. It's that God is king. That's what allows me to be a person of blessing. It's an upside-down code. I want to read this. This is from NT right now. It's an upside-down code, or perhaps, Jesus might have said, a right-way-up code And so the upside-down ones people have been following. God is doing something quite new, as Jesus had emphasized in the synagogue at Nazareth. He is fulfilling his promises at last, And this will mean good news for all the people who haven't had any for a long time. The poor, the hungry, those who weep, those who are hated, blessings on them. Not that there's anything virtuous about being poor or hungry in itself, but when injustice is reigning, the world may have have to be turned once more from the right way up for God's justice and kingdom to come to birth. And that will provoke opposition from people who like things the way that they are. Jesus' message of promise and warning, of blessing and curse, rang with echoes of the Hebrew prophets of old. He knew that the reaction would be the same. When the systems benefited you, it's hard to let go. Right? When the systems worked out in your favor, when that power you can use for your own benefit, it's hard to let go. We are probably all people of privilege and blessing. I know we are compared to many people in this world. That's not to make you feel guilty or ashamed or anything like that. That's just just a statement of fact. We're in one of the most prosperous nations and one of the most prosperous times of history. Yeah, we got our problems. Yeah, we have a lot of problems. But we have privilege. How do we use it? We have a voice. How do we use it? The kingdom of God is also decidedly upside down to our logic. I want to acknowledge this. So yes, the Lord subverts things to make sure that everybody gets it. But the actual framing of the kingdom of God is still upside down. So this is in Matthew 20. This is after Jesus says, the first will be last and the last will be first. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling, bef- kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit on your right, the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Now they they, they were saying, We want your kingdom, right? We we want your pattern. We want you to be in charge. We just want to make sure that we're right <laughs> at your side. We we want to be at your right and your left. And I love his answer. You you don't know what you're asking. You you have no Idea of what you're in for if you really want that. And so he gives them that challenge. Do you want? Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. He's talking about the way that these were going to be martyrs for the faith. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared for my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Yeah, I get that. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Their high officials exercised authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The way things work in the kingdom of God, once things are even correct, once Jesus is on throne, it's still not like he's just going to sit on that throne and tell everybody what to do and we all have to do it like good little worker bees. That's not the way the kingdom of God works. Even once he's reigning and ruling, the framing of the kingdom of God, when things are the right way up, there's still an ethos of love between all of us, of service, of humility, of doing this thing together. That's the pattern that he's always wanted all along. That When we get to the kingdom of God, that's what it will look like. And I don't think we understand that. <laughs> in God's kingdom, we love our enemies. We turn the other cheek. We store up treasures in heaven. We're blessed when we're persecuted, comforted when we mourn. And we inherit the earth if we're humble. Jesus tells us in essence that everything we thought we knew about the good life, about being blessed, about, being, about following God is wrong and it has to be flipped on its head. We don't make progress in God's kingdom by trying to get ahead or by looking out for number one. The way is narrow, even backwards when compared to the way of the world. And true discipleship is upside down. So what do we do about this? All right. So this is not just a concept for you to think about and to realize, oh, the kingdom of God is different than the ways of this world, and God loves the marginalized. Like, Okay, that is all true, but it's got to mean something to us. Washing of feet. It was before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress. The devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. They had come from God and was returning to God. And so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Pause on that. I think it's so easy to read this because you know what's coming, and, and you jump ahead. But because he knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from the Father and was returning God, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. He washed his feet because he knew he was the one in charge. <laughs> because he knew that things were actually being set in the proper order, then he goes, "Then I can wash each other's feet." because things are looking the way they're meant to look in this place, because I know that everything's going to work out, I can love my brother. I can serve him. I can love him the way that God wants him to be loved. We can do this. We can trust this because God is on the throne. He got up from the meal, took his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin, began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. I mean, I get it, right? There's somebody who you love, and, and it's making you uncomfortable, <laughs> right? This is, oh, this is awkward. Like, it's, you don't have to, and then you look pious, right? You don't have to serve me. Let me serve you. Let let, let me, and we have this false piety about not being served and, and and doing this whole thing the way that we feel is right. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And then you flip it. All right, so if it's not false piety, then give me all the blessing, (laughs) right? Then I want to be rich. I want to be the millionaire. Let me win the lottery. See, we've got both extremes here. Peter is so good at being us. (laughs) and We're so good at being Peter, right? He shows us from one extreme to the other. I will be the most destitute. I will will be so pious. I will be so good. Fine. Then if you're going to bless me, bless me with everything. Bless my socks off. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. You are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put his, on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. I, th- this is actually confusing. But let's not skip over the end part of this that you think you know the lesson, because it actually is really kind of confusing. John 13 says this that a servant washes the feet, right? And Jesus washes his disciples' feet. So what's the lesson? Is, is it down with the man? You know, like, like take down the system? No, that the servant is greater, no servant is greater than his master. But the system, the system that has allowed us to see each other through this lens, the system that has allowed us to understand that the, the, the lesser must serve the greater, I think just maybe the Lord is saying, down with that system just maybe he's saying the fact that you look at each other and you assign position that you assign responsibility that you you expect others to serve you or to treat you in a certain way because of all of these other things because i'm the one who has lessons to teach because you're the one who listens when i speak because you've got this power because you've been in this company for 20 years and i've been here for five whatever the system may be the lord is saying don't you see that we're brothers in this Don't you see that this is how we love each other in the kingdom of God? Don't you see that regardless of position, regardless of authority, regardless of blessing, regardless of all these things, love is what calls us to the table. Love is what is eternal. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Our pride, our systems, our poverty, our brokenness, all of these things can keep us far away from each other. I cannot enumerate the number of ways that brokenness keeps us from receiving the goodness of God. Shame, sorrow, loss, fear. Jesus is the master. He's not the servant. But he's showing us the way that the kingdom of God looks. This is what it's meant to be like. Now, I don't think that washing feet is as relevant today as it was then. And I think if we actually did a foot washing for everybody, it would, the meaning would be lost. How can you wash each other's feet? What can you do to really love your neighbor? What can you do to really show that there's no division, there's no hierarchy, there's no authority, that, that, that the, privi- the privilege that I have, the blessing I have, the, the honor that I have, I spend it for you. I don't have a corruption of power, the things that I've been given, that I keep them for myself, and I keep this benefit for myself, but I give this, for those who are marginalized, those who are forgotten, those for whom the Lord just loves, regardless of position. Second relevance for what we do. I like this one. Thus saith the Lord, if you have money, have a party. <laughs> yeah, this is biblical. Um, yes, like we said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Luke 16.9 says this, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. Did you know that's in the Bible? Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Lord says have a party, y'all. <laughs> Lord says if you have money, use it on your friends. What can you do with it here and now? It's not going to last until the kingdom come. It's not going to last until heaven. What do your neighbors need? What do your friends want? Have Have a party. Like, why don't we preach this more often? Luke 69, this should be known, I think, in many churches, right? Is is this, though, like the power of a friendship? You know, there's that that joke on the internet, the real treasure was the friends you make along the way. Maybe, yes. (laughs) The real treasure, the brotherhood, the believers, the, the communion of the table, what this is meant to look like is completely different than what we've made this. When we want the table to be central in this church, That is really trying to reduce and remove all these ideas of the pulpit being the central point where you have to look up and you have to listen. You want to learn and and you're there and I'm here. When we want the table to be central, we come to the table because it's where the Lord has called all of us. It's where there's a meal set for us. Love remains. Christ shows us even on his final night with his friends that they should love each other. Be kind, be generous, be God-like. Be where God is when he's with the marginalized. Let's find ourselves there. So let's not forget that this is all about kingdom theology, proclaiming, practicing God's rule and reign. How can we go about business like the world does and expect the kingdom to be at hand? If we go about making hierarchy, making authority, making power, making money, how we understand things, how we recognize God's blessing or favor, how can we expect the kingdom of God to show up? How can we practice life as the world teaches according to worldly wisdom and think that we're setting things the way that God wants them to be? If we just recreate the systems of the world inside the church, if we just honor the positions and power that the world has created, what are we doing to set things right and to declare that the kingdom of God is here and that God is in charge, therefore we don't have to be concerned? Are we so comfortable with the status quo that we've missed seeing what God is doing, who God is loving? Or are we so concerned about only getting ours? There's a lot there, I think, for us to be challenged by. There's a lot there for me to be challenged by. But I, I, I think my challenge for you this week, yes, have a party if you can. <laughs> but also, really, what does it look like for you to wash somebody else's feet? you got to be a little creative with this one, Okay. I, I, don't, I don't think that this is for special occasions. I don't think that this is for after you get your act together, <laughs> all right? And you, you want to push this off and say, like, one day, whenever I, I understand this better or whenever I understand all these things, like then I'll do it. What does this actually mean for you? You know somebody who's been marginalized. You, you, you do. By, by sex, by, by religion, by wealth, by tenure in a company. What does it look like? for you to actually use your privilege for their benefit, to show them love, show them the kingdom of God, and to do it in the name of Jesus. To not be concerned about losing your power, to not be concerned about losing your privilege, but to actually spend it for someone to celebrate who they are made in Christ's image. I'm going to pray for us. Do you want to come back up and leave us in a final song of worship?